This is ContactTalkRadio.com. Consciousness in action. And you are taking action into your consciousness by tuning into Contact Talk Radio. And on TuneIn.com, Hing.fm, and Upsnap Mobile. Contact Talk Radio. Welcome to Seek Reality Radio with Roberta Grimes. Joyous conversations about what the afterlife evidence and modern science combine to tell us is true about your reality. You have nothing to fear. You are eternal and you are perfectly loved. Knowing the truth changes everything. Now, here is Roberta. There's just one reality. We've always known that has to be true, but throughout modern history, we've accepted the notion that both science and Christianity were somehow telling us the truth about reality, one reality superimposed upon another, I guess. We're coming now to realize that neither has it right, but each has a perspective that lets us get a little bit closer to understanding the one reality that in which we live. Both are belief systems. When we get beyond belief systems and approach reality open-mindedly, that's when we begin to understand that there is one reality and it's more wonderful than our most optimistic imaginings. Our guest this week has spent his life fearlessly approaching the study of reality from a scientific perspective without the atheism that is now central to modern science. The result is an extraordinary body of work. Dr. Gary Schwartz of the University of Arizona is my wonderful friend and great hero. He is professor at the at University of Arizona. I just take, took this off his footer. He's professor of psychology, medicine, neurology, psychiatry, and surgery, all simultaneously. So five realities there. And he's also director of their laboratory for advances in consciousness and health. He's written several books which are groundbreaking and, and are part of uh, of a, an enormous legacy. Um, the Afterlife Experiments is my favorite. Gary proved that there are mediums who are in contact with the dead, open and shut. Um, he's written The God Experiments, um, the, no, The God Code. Um, uh, Sarah, but I can't even remember all of them. He's written so many books and contributed to others, and um, and he's my friend. <laughs> Welcome, Gary. I'm eager to talk to you about your, your next ventures. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and happy Thanksgiving to you and all of your listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to you. We're, we're trying to understand, um, a lot of us really are, feel called to spend our lives trying to understand what reality is. Uh, and I'm a latecomer to this field, and I just sort of feel when I can make a friend like someone I've admired all my life, like Dr. Schwartz, um, I just am honored and humbled and thrilled. To, that, to even have him come on my show. Um, but a lot of people may not have heard so much about what you've done, Gary. Tell me how you got into this. How did, what made you start to look at what reality actually is from all these perspectives? Um, I want to address that question because um, it's, it's a reasonable one. But I first just have to honor something else that you just said, to be spontaneous. Um, you emphasized wanting to understand reality. And the key phrase is the word understanding. Now, the reason why I'm paying attention to that word right this second is because coincidentally, last night, um, I was, if you would, communing with the universe. And I was um, thinking about the question of the relationship between what we experience with our senses, what we believe to be true, 
what we think we know to be true, um, what we have faith in being true, versus what we understand to be true. And what became clear to me last night, maybe than at any other time in my life, is that the process of understanding is really central. It's not enough just to experience or to believe or to know or to have faith. But that added ingredient of understanding is really what frees us. Um, it's not just, quote, knowing the truth, if you would, but it's understanding it that makes a big difference. So for me to be hearing your introduction and hear you introduce it by the, with the term, you know, wanting to understand reality, that to me is just, is very meaningful. By the way, we're, one of the next books I'm writing actually with a group of three other people is called Dimensions of Higher Understanding, which is a whole framework uh, for improving our capacity to understand anything, um, and therefore, of course, by extension, consciousness and what you call the one reality. So I just want to thank you for that, emphasizing that in your uh, in your introduction. Wow. Well, thank you for pointing that out. I, I, I agree with you absolutely that that's what we really need to be going for, because if we don't have that, all we're doing is arguing about our own beliefs, our mm-hmm. own preferences, um, and not about what's really true. I'm, I feel passionate about learning what's true, because what's true is immutably true. It's true all the time. It's true for everyone. And uh, anything that's related to just what our personal experience is, is true for us, but it's not necessarily true for the, for the next person. It's time we knew. We spent enough time speculating. It's time to know. So thank you for that, Gary. You're welcome. Anyway, getting back to your original question, the it depends upon how specific you want to be. You could ask at what point, you know, how did I begin being interested in consciousness, for example, versus how did I begin becoming interested in the, a greater spiritual reality and consciousness after physical death? Which was well, you, you started out as a scientist, though. You were oh, probably just as dry as toast, a scientist, yeah, right down pretty the much. line. I was. Well, I, I would have to say I was almost dry as toast. And the reason, <laughs> the reason why I qualify that is that I had a little jam on me, and that's because I was a jazz musician. Oh, <laughs> so okay. Well, you were you were balanced to that extent. That's a good. It was thing. balanced to that extent. So I had a little bit of playfulness and playing um, that balanced my scientific side. But you know, humor aside, the yes, I was. In fact, in some respects, I. I, inter- I always explain to people that I'm basically a boring scientist. And what I mean by, quote, boring scientist is that, is that I approach things with a, with a, I try to approach things with a completely open mind. And I'm very sort of detail oriented. I'm very much focused on evidence and data and, and the pursuit of giving all hypotheses uh, a chance to, to shine in the sun, so to speak, and then rise in terms of being in being determined to be useful or not. So I very much, I, I'm, I'm so scientific in that sense that I even apply it in my personal life. So I apply, if you would, the scientific method or the scientific process, even when I address in my own personal life um, things of a spiritual nature or a metaphysical nature. And, and, and I began as a scientist, but I was raised to believe I was essentially an atheist. 
For example, yeah. I was raised to believe that it was ashes to ashes, dust to dust, case closed. There was no such thing as an afterlife. Um, that anybody believed in that, it was someone who believed in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and, um, wow. and the Easter Bunny. And so that's how I and, – and I was like that all through graduate school. You know, my, when I did my PhD at Harvard and then when I was on the faculty at Harvard, I mean that was, that was my frame. That's how I'd been educated. And it was only until I moved to Yale University as a tenured professor and began thinking more deeply, uh, particularly about physics and quantum physics and the nature of energy and so on, and also began learning about, uh, quote, paranormal phenomena and, and, and related things that literally the... My analysis of science took me to a greater spiritual reality, and then it was complemented by having personal experiences, which, uh, which, if you would, nurtured and further stimulated that that uh, pursuit. It's a remarkable journey because uh, you you not only are have you been a scientist, but you obviously were doing it in the Ivy Leagues, and mm-hmm. therefore you were, you were doing it to the nth degree. I, I think it's the fact that you still approach things scientifically that makes your work so valuable. Because knowing you personally, I know that you have opened up spiritually to an extraordinary extent. And it would be easy for someone who has the kind of knowledge you have on a spiritual level to sort of say, but I don't need to worry about those, those little scientific details anymore, but that's not you. You, you really do ground everything you do in the same kind of dry science that, uh, you know, f- facts matter and dis- statistics and details matter. In that science, you ground all your work that way. That's what makes it valuable. You know, it's that's what makes you unique too, Gary. I don't know anyone else who, who works that way. You know, you may be right about that, and a few other people have been emphasizing this to me recently, because I, I so much live it that I sort of forget how rare it is. Um, it's rare. <laughs> and, and, and your metaphor, you know, is dry as toast, and then I joked and I said, but I put a little jam on it. I mean, the truth is, you can't have a jelly sandwich without the the sandwich. I mean, you right. can't have, and if you're going to have toast with jam, the there's nothing to put the jam on unless you've right. got the toast. For me, That's the toast right. is the foundation. And it I is. honor and celebrate the toast. And then it, I use the toast <laughs> to, to be a platform on which to place the jam. Now, how's that for a silly metaphor? I think it's, it's wonderful, actually. But the thing is, if you didn't do that, you'd be talking always about your own reality. And I know that's you've had correct. some extraordinary experiences, but they're your own reality. And that's been the problem, I think, in this field all along. People have been talking about their own reality. Oh, you know, they talked with a dead person through a medium or they had this extraordinary experience. I had two experiences of light. Those are my own reality. If I weren't if I didn't get beyond that, it would be useless to anyone else. What had happened to me would be useless. That's and true. And that. Of course. And the, the, the challenge, the greatest challenge is to honor both of them. Because what happens is that people, typically people who are, quote, dry toast scientists, like <laughs> I am, um, they're so focused on the toast that they denigrate or dismiss that's right. The personal experience. Yes. And, and that, to me, in an extreme sense, is almost 
horrific. I mean, it's probably more than a metaphor when I say it's, it's like a sin. Because our greatest capacity as humans, besides our capacity for understanding, is our capacity to feel, to love, to have direct personal experiences, which, are, um, which can also be individualistic and unique. And so the question is, how do we integrate the reality of personal experience with the understanding that personal experience is never perfect, meaning that it's always filtered? And so how do we use science to enhance our understanding of our own personal experience? And how do we use personal experience to enhance our, quote, scientific understanding of the world and life and so on? And you're right. I, I, I may be somewhat unusual, uh, maybe very unusual, in, in, walking, in, walk, in living in both of those worlds. Yes, that's hard um, to do. <laughs> it, is very, it is hard to do. Um, I, I, my profession is also dry. I'm, a, I'm an attorney. Um, I, I lived my whole life having had extraordinary experiences and being unwilling or unable to actually tell anyone about them because I knew that it would change their whole view of me. It, right. They were always there, though. They, they informed everything I did and thought and said, but I could never tell anyone that because it would have made them say, suddenly they would dismiss me altogether as a flake. Um, now I don't care what anyone thinks, so I'm proud to talk about it. But, <laughs> but I had to be in my 60s surviving. before I could do that. I know. Yes, I, but if I remember correctly, when we had the privilege to actually meet face to face, and you visited the our, the our laboratory where we're doing some of the most, if you would, pioneering you know uh, work on on the detecting the presence of spirit using contemporary technology, you shared with me the fact that. Even though that you have been, if you would, come out of the closet um, <laughs> right. of your, in terms of having very broad and beautiful experiences, that you expected that many of your uh, uh, your your clients might frown upon, you know, let oh, alone yeah. your peers, that you were pleasantly surprised <laughs> that they knew you well enough to not judge the book by its cover or to not d- deny you or to somehow denigrate or question your abilities as a lawyer uh, because you were also hu- simultaneously a human being who had some very special experiences and that you were standing up for them. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, there were two reactions. Probably two-thirds of the people who are, are my clients, and I'm not taking new clients. They're all long-standing friends and, and dear, dear friends. Um, maybe two-thirds were excited about it, and they wanted to read my book and stuff. Um, about a third immediately changed the subject. They went right back to t- <laughs> it was it was as if I had said something that just was beyond the pale, but they it didn't make them not want to work with me anymore. It just made them change the subject. So I respect that too. I, some people, um, I think we're all at different stages of our spiritual growth, but we're all on that path. That's the path where it's the reason that I think the universe exists. But for some people, it's not the right time to right. confront more directly that fact. You know, I, I met with someone recently who, who will remain anonymous, and he shared with me the following. Um, he said, you know, Gary, he said, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Um, and this is a person who has tremendous responsibility and complexity of life and very successful. He says, I wouldn't want to be in your shoes, he said, because number one, you have to face a lot of 
uh, challenges in what you do. Um, but secondly, he said, are you there? Yes. Oh, yes. But, okay. Secondly, I heard a funny beep. Uh, but secondly, he said, um, he said, you end up raising questions that are so challenging and some of them are so frightening that I would personally not want to have to think about them unless I was absolutely forced to do so. Isn't that interesting? He finds them frightening. Yes. And so I asked him about that because, I mean, I understand that these are big questions and I understand that they're really challenging. But why were they, quote, frightening? So I'll give you an example of one of the, and it relates to you. In fact, we've even had some conversations about this. Gary, I, we're going to need to take a break. Can you hold sure. that and, until Absolutely. after the break? Because that will make everyone stay with us. You're, you're listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. Our guest is the wonderful, extraordinary Dr. Gary Schwartz. He's going to be keynoting the 39th Annual Convention of the Academy of Spiritual and Consciousness Studies in July of next year in Scottsdale. Its title is going to be New Developments in Afterlife Communication, and that is an area where Dr. Schwartz really shines. So be sure to try to think about coming to that and meeting both of us there. Meanwhile, I'm Roberta Grimes, and I'll be right back. If you've ever wondered why you're here, if you wonder whether God is real, if you wonder why life isn't fair or whether there's life after death, let Roberta Grimes help you learn the joyous truth about your own reality. Roberta has trouble with believing things. She's always wanted to know, so she spent decades studying nearly 200 years of afterlife evidence. In the process, she made some wonderful discoveries about God, reality, and your own eternal nature. The truth is better than your most optimistic hopes. Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Why wonder and worry when at last it's possible to know? When she was eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is Cliff Notes to 200 Years of Abundant and Consistent Afterlife Evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are. Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. We're talking with the wonderful Gary Schwartz, and he was telling a story. So, Gary, please go ahead. Sure. Um, I was talking about some of the challenges that this work uh, poses for all of us um, and society as a whole, and where it's going to require that we 
think more broadly. So, and I'll give you an example of the kind of thing that might, quote, frighten us. Um, let's imagine that scientists and engineers are successful and that sometime in the future, and not, and not the far, far future, but the foreseeable future, we will have the evolution of what I call from the cell phone to, to, through the smartphone to what I call the soul phone. Yes. Um, and the soul phone is essentially a technology which will allow us to call and, and then be able to communicate with people who have, who have transitioned, who have passed on, i.e., quote, the deceased. And um, theoretically, you should be able to not just place calls or have text messages or even have Skype calls with, um, <laughs> with, uh, with your own loved ones. But uh, you could theoretically place a call to very special people, even someone like Albert Einstein, for example, or President Kennedy or people earlier than that in any field. And they could do just like anybody else. They can keep their number unlisted. They can choose to to, uh, <laughs> to screen their calls and return them or not. I'm hoping for the soul phone, and you've got them with unlisted numbers already. Of course, you think so and far the, beyond uh, everybody else. <laughs> and 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 you're not bothering them. I mean, not you're not bothering them any more than you're bothering. I'm bothering you, or you bothering me by asking each other to do things. Okay, because it's it's just it's part of life. Because it's right. all life. It's one reality. It's all life. Okay, right. so. If it's all life, and I've never said that before, I like that it's all life. Um, so now let's imagine the following: we have someone, and, and in a book that I'm writing called "The Soul Phone Revolution," I, in my introduction, I, I list this as a question. So I said, imagine there's a soul phone, and imagine that Albert Einstein, um, very smart man, um, has developed a theory uh, from on, from the other side about how to uh, dramatically improve our capacity to harness energy from the sun in a way that is uh, minimally obstructive to the planet, i.e. it doesn't produce all the carbon dioxide emissions and other kinds of problems that most of contemporary technology does. Okay, And what he decides to do is he wants to have this uh, produced and he understands the, the necessity for having this kind of technology Patented, and part of the reason you have to have th- you want to have things patented is because you want to be able to protect their deployment. Meaning, you want them to be uh, uh, produced in a way that's ethical, that's safe, um, that's not abusive, and so on. And Einstein was a person who was very much concerned with uh, the safe use of technology. So what Einstein does is he uh, decides with a patent attorney, both on the other side and on this side, to. Prepare a patent application. And remember, he could type, he could do everything, you know. So there's no longer any constraints here. So he submits a patent application for technology that engineers on the earth have literally, using his diagrams and information, have built and can prove that it works. He now submits the patent application. Okay. Now, the, and now here's the, the challenge for the patent office. Should he be entitled to get a patent? Now, of course, if he was physically alive, there'd be no question. As long as the technology worked, as long as he wasn't stealing other people's ideas, uh, there's no question that he'd be awarded (laughs) a patent. The only difference here is that he's doing it from the other, what we call, quote, the other side. He's he's inconveniently dead. Yes, he's He's inconveniently dead. That's the inconvenient (laughs) truth. He's inconveniently dead. And now the question becomes... 
Is he entitled, i.e., does he have the right wow. to submit a patent? Yeah, wow. And does he, have a, does he have a right to have some say in how this technology is given to the world, made available to the world in terms of how it's marketed? So it, Does he have a right, if he chooses, and the key phrase is right, if he chooses, to receive a royalty, a, you know, a license fee on his technology, which he then could choose, if he wished, to give to his grandchildren or to yeah. certain charities or to universities to do certain kinds of research. In other words, and, uh, and also, of course, pay taxes and do everything else that a person would do. <laughs> now, this whole yeah. notion of <laughs> spirit intellectual property it gives, gives, gives people death and taxes a headache. whole new meaning. What? <laughs> yes, what? yes. What would you say? Gives I said that gives death and taxes a whole new meaning. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. You know, and and that's why this causes a headache for people. Right. And, and this person will remain nameless. Um, he said to me, he said, you know, he says, you're going to be starting all these new industries. You're going to have you know, all these spirit rights attorneys and people are going to be suing from the other side. And What a strange and way so- to think about it, Gary. What do you mean? I, seriously, that's what that was his worry. Well, here's what his worry was: that it would cause so much complexity, and there's so much abuse in the legal system, anyways, that it would just make oh, things is. worse. So I said to him, <laughs> "I'll call him Ralph." I said, okay, Ralph, "Ralph." I said, "Ralph, look, um, there's a very simple solution to this. All society would have to do is to say, after you've given up your physical body, you no longer have any physical rights." So we could right. just make a blanket statement that says if you want to give humanity things, we really deeply appreciate it and we'll honor you and thank you. But you're, you don't have any say in how the technology is used or you don't have any receipt of any money. The ownership will go to the world. We could yeah, make or, or that as a – Whoever you designate. Right. You know, no, no. But we could make something. it as a – we could no, we could make it as a policy. The simple way is to say – there are no spirit rights. That's the simple way yeah. to handle it. So I said, right. then you don't have to think about it. Okay? The headache becomes if you feel that there is such a thing as ethics and that if people don't lose their rights to contribute to the society that they're citizens of simply because they happen to have lost their physical body. And that's then where the challenge comes in. The challenge becomes how do we navigate the new, the new implications of, of, of rights. Or I give another example. Um, and by the way, I hope your audience is enjoying this pondering, and maybe they'll even communicate with you their own thoughts about this. Um, consider the following. I, Gary, you are so far ahead of anyone else I've ever talked to in thinking about these things. I'm not sure anyone would know what to say. I know, that's a, but people have, but people still have opinions about it. So let me give you another example. Uh-huh. You know, where you know you're alive, we're physically alive, and we prepare a will. And in that will, for example, we decide that we want to give money to um, to specific um, uh, charities or something other than our families. Let's say, in addition to our families. So let's say you wish to give money, and this is a perfect example because I. I, you know, I know a lot of things about places like Harvard and Yale and Stanford and so on because I was affi- you know, affiliated to various degrees with each of these institutions um, in various ways. Um, and uh, 
the or knowledgeable of them and the and so money is given to these institutions let's say uh you you earmark a million dollar endowment to support research let's say on spirituality and health i'm making this up but i mean there have been lots of instances where people gave money for like paranormal activities and the university says gee we'd love to have this money we'd love to have this endowment we'll do this in your name and we'll honor your request and now the person dies they, you know, they transition. Now, 10 years later, the University of Myanmar is embarrassed or its priorities have changed. And they really could use that money for something else. And so what they do is they twist the intention and end up earmarking it for things that were not the, origi- the donor's original intentions. Now, this happens a lot. Oh, oh the I question, know. It does. The question is... Um, First of all, is that ultimately ethical? And secondly, what happens if there is no death? Okay, So that you now, on the other side, and you've got Skype and everything else, um, you, can, you have the opportunity to oversee or to make sure that your intentions are being honored. To oh, ex- my goodness. To, to what extent <laughs> is, there, is there, you know, if you would increase responsibility, not just to honor people's requests, but also... To give them control, to to complain, to take it, you know, if would they, they if have they, standing to sue? Exactly. Now you see, it's one story. If while you're alive, you say, "Look, I'm giving this money to the university. I'd like you to use it for purpose X, but I'm giving you permission in my name to use it for either purpose Y or for anything you deem appropriate." If you sign that agreement, that's yeah. your contract your ethical right. and spiritual contract, then you've said go for it. Yeah, right. But on the other hand, if you write a contract that says, look, I'm giving it to this money, but it's for this purpose in perpetuity. And now you change that, which unfortunately happens a lot. Um, that to me is questionable. And that's going to become even more of an issue if and when, and I think it's merely a question of when, not if. It's um, when. It's the, the cell phone technology um, goes from the state that it currently is, which is clearly documented. It's proof of concept, like the Wright brothers proved that there was flight. Right. And the question is, can it be developed to the point of accuracy, reliability and accuracy, like flight had to be engineered to ultimately turn it to commercial airplanes? Can it be developed and engineered to the point where it can be so useful that, it, that it's operating just like one of our cell phones or Skype calls, so you can really use it for the purpose that it has its potential for. These kinds of questions are so novel for most of us. Oh, they are. And they cause headaches. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in the yeah. sense that they are challenging. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. Oh, my goodness, that seemed like a pretty big tip. <laughs> I mean, speaking, speaking just as a lawyer, I, I think that what you said very early in that, in that uh, little, little riff, which was wonderful, by the way, thank you for sharing those thoughts, um, what you said early on that material rights would go with a material body, and it was possible for us then to say to people who didn't have that that um, they didn't any longer have the rights associated with, with the, the material level. I have a feeling that's what the law would say. 
Um, I don't know. I, I, it's so hard to know because it all depends on the extent to which the soul phone would give them the right to or the ability to participate actively. Because if well, someone do I have is... The, can I, can, do, do I have the capacity to participate with you to collaborate even, for example, long distance over the phone or with Well, Skype. that's what I was just going to say. <laughs> I mean, it seems, it seems to me that, that we will get to the point where there's so little between this level and the next, and we can yes. feel that veil thinning, but we'll get to the point where the, the, the distinction between possessing a physical body and not having that detail will be so minor that we won't be able to deny people those rights. It will. It will be like. It would be like denying someone because he was a quadriplegic. Uh, human rights. Exactly. And well and, stated. <laughs> so, so I think you're. You, but you've given me something new and and strange to think about. But I think your, I think your speculation is correct. That it is going to require a radical transformation of, uh, certainly of the legal system and of the way we even think about human rights. Um, and what a human being is, and those those questions are really going to probably be the single biggest transformation in in our understanding of what it means to be human that we've ever had. I mean, it by goes, the way, you you just said I have to interrupt you again. You said it's the biggest transformation in our understanding of what it means to be human. The reason why I have to capture this and highlight it right this second, and by the way, I'm really glad this is being recorded digitally so I can go back and listen to our conversation. Yeah, it will be available as a podcast. Good. Is the following. When I, this past summer, I had the privilege to work with two young lawyers-to-be, one who is a, now a third-year law student and another who is um, applying to law school. Um, and because this work is controversial, um, We've agreed that I won't use their names because they have to be within the mainstream. But they spent part of the time this summer exploring with me the question of spirit rights from, from a legal point of view. And they very quickly explained to me through the, you know, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the whole question of how do you prove whether someone is, is human or not or continues to be meet the criteria for human. And as we went through the legal definition of human, um, that save for, the, save for the absence of a physical body, literally every major important quality that we call humanness is expressed in spades from people who, as you just beautifully put it, are at the next level. Yeah. They're living in the next story, it, if you would, the next floor of the of the of the skyscraper of the of, of reality. And so once you once you we re examine and better understand and transform our understanding of what it means to be human, um, it will then hopefully elevate our consciousness so that we can actually live more and uh, live more humanly. And that includes, of course, our capacity to understand uh, justice and fairness and love and compassion um, and so on. So you inspire me when I, when I hear you speak. 
Um, it's time for us to thank you. It's time for us to break again. When we come back, I'm going to tell you about my book that follows directly on what you you just said, Gary. A perfect lead into it. Wonderful. But meanwhile, this is this is Secret Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Doc Radio Network, and my dear, wonderful friend, Dr. Gary Schwartz, and I are having a conversation that I'm going to want to listen to as well. Please stay tuned. We'll be right back. eight, Roberta Grimes had an amazing experience of light. She spent the next 50 years researching the afterlife to try and understand what had happened to her. And the result is her book, The Fun of Dying. Find out what really happens next. Roberta's book is cliff notes to 200 years of abundant and consistent afterlife evidence. It will show you why extinction is impossible for you, explain how you can enjoy the death process, and describe for you in wonderful detail the glorious heaven that awaits us all. Available on Amazon, in Kindle, and in print, The Fun of Dying will start you on a thrilling and life-affirming voyage as you learn the glorious truth about who you really are. If you've ever wondered why you're here, if you wonder whether God is real, if you wonder why life isn't fair or whether there's life after death, let Roberta Grimes help you learn the joyous truth about your own reality. Roberta has trouble with believing things. She's always wanted to know, so she spent decades studying nearly 200 years of afterlife evidence. In the process, she made some wonderful discoveries about God, reality, and your own eternal nature. The truth is better than your most optimistic hopes. Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific. Why wonder and worry when at last it's possible to know? Welcome back to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes on the Contact Talk Radio Network. And Dr. Gary Schwartz and I are talking about the implications of our being able to communicate easily with the, the people that we used to think were dead, although, of course, they're not. Uh, and he has, he's had thoughts about it beyond anything I've ever uh, thought of. And I, what, what I think is it's going to be a transformation akin to the transformation, which we don't seem to understand how important it was, the transformation that Thomas Jefferson gave us um, with his work in writing the Declaration of Independence and in going on to uh, codify a whole lot of rights that had never really been put together quite that way before and eventually became the Bill of Rights. Um, in, in the spring, uh, my 1993 recreation of Martha Jefferson's journal will be republished as one of the three uh, novels that I'm publishing then. The, the, the next two are part of a six-novel series following on um, my Thomas, which was the recreation of Martha Jefferson's journal. But until I did, and I did several years of research just to write that about that 10 years, until I did that work, I didn't understand how important 
Thomas Jefferson's work was um, in just putting together um, this intellectual framework for what became the United States. It was a new idea, this whole notion of personal freedom and, and personal rights uh, in a way that we really never had thought about it before. Um, he, he was a, an ardent abolitionist, um, especially during his wife's lifetime. He was a broken man after she died. He was never the same man after ni- 1782 that he had been before. But had he lived, he would have uh, ended slavery, I'm sh- certain, by 1800. He was working on it. Did you know, Gary, that, the, that Virginia was the first place on earth to ban the importation of slaves? No. Virginia! Wow. And that was Thomas Jefferson's work. And it was the start of his work on proving that blacks and whites were able to live together and could live together and he had an experiment all put together and he was about to do it and he retired in 1781 and he and his wife were going to do that together and that would be their life's work and she died wow i have to so ask you a question go ahead go ahead um that is beautiful by the way and i i'm looking <laughs> forward to to reading to reading all of your books um but this comment about jefferson and his history is is very stirring for me um you know, and I can't remember the name of this, but you know, with the four presidents that were that were carved in stone on the in the Dakotas. Oh, oh Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is he one of the four? Yep, he is, and he deserves uh, to be. Okay, now here's a synchronicity. Are you ready for this? Yes. Okay. By the way, you you already should understand that I pay attention to synchronicities yes, and celebrate I'm... them, and that's and that's and I think that's part of the reason why they happen. Is because I pay attention to them. Okay, a, a few nights ago, I can't remember how long ago, I chanced upon a TV program, which um, talked about uh, that the, the carving, the conception and carving, and the process of carving that monument. Okay, and um, I thought it was very interesting, um, but it was sort of like my consciousness had a spotlight on it, but had no meaning. Okay, then this morning. Literally, I don't know, 15 minutes before our radio show, I looked up Mannheim Steamrollers' uh, appearance in an earlier Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade. (laughs) Now, for the record, I have never looked up anything for a Macy's parade. I have also never looked anything up on Mannheim Steamrollers, okay? But due to a set of synchronicities... I looked it up because I was looking up. I was trying to get a picture of their float that they had in this year's Macy's parade, which was very synchronistic to me. So I clicked on the YouTube that was available. And I don't know, it was 2011 or whatever. And there he is in a float, which was not the float that I was looking for. But the float was of... That monument with those four really? <laughs> presidents there. So wow. I've got on my full screen, and it's a big screen monitor in front of my face. There's this gigantic image, and there's Chip Davis, who's the founder of, of uh, Man I'm Steamroller, who I personally know and greatly admire, playing in front of those four people. And again, I thought it was odd because I don't He's eat, second I, I, from the left. What? That's my guy. Second Jefferson, from the left second. is Thomas Jefferson. Okay, yes. so now yeah. let's. Let's pose the following. Let's pose that Thomas Jefferson, who was such an exceptional person and was concerned with with human rights yep. and what it means to be human, 
let's say that his soul is as alive as well as everybody else's. Moreover, let's assume that various mediums who I've known over the years who have told me that they've been in contact with people like uh, George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Uh Abraham Lincoln, that they're not all flakes, okay? They're not all crazy. That the ones that I'm talking about, the ones who have actually passed muster, who have participated in active research and have uh, been successful, that those people who have that they were actually picking up communication from Thomas Jefferson. Uh-huh. Now, if that's the case, boy, if we were going to look for advisors from the other side. Yes, yeah, we got the A to, to provide <laughs> a vision for yes. the new human and the expansion, the ever greater expansion of human rights, who better to invite yes. to, to engage in this dialogue but Thomas Jefferson, and you're connected to Thomas Jefferson in part <laughs> because you so appreciate him. Yeah, oh, yes, um, and quite an extraordinary, extraordinary man. Um, it's the, the more you study him, the more you understand um, what the heights are to which it is possible for humans to aspire in terms of intellectual and moral ability. Um, he, 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 he believed mankind would approve with each generation. He was also a very optimistic guy. He never understood he was the pinnacle. Um, but he was. <laughs> he really was. You know why he said, I mean, notice that he didn't say people were entitled to life, liberty, and property. That Those were their basic rights. That's the English, the old English law was life. That's what we're entitled to, preservation and, and owning our life, liberty, and property. The reason he didn't do that was because he didn't want anyone to think he had a right to call another person his property. So he said wow. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Wow. That was deliberate. Well, if you're entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and there is no death, do those rights all of a sudden be taken away from you? No. See, that's right. You're right. They can't be. I'd never thought about it before, but you're right. You're absolutely right. The only question then is the, the extent to which communication has to be developed and become smooth for those people to be able to assert their rights. And that's not unlike the problem of slavery because the 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 holders of slaves, by the way, 18th century slavery was quite different from 19th century and as far as I've been able to determine, but that's another story. But people truly believed that people who were had a different skin color probably were a different class of being in some fashion. Um, and therefore, just as people who are dead are a different class of being, and therefore we could discriminate against them or hold them in slavery or whatever because they were different. But well, here's what that I'm hoping became untenable. Obviously, right? What I'm hoping is then that we're not going to have a new class of humans on the planet who are going to try to institute spirit slaves. Well, that's you know. what we have until we prove otherwise. <laughs> so you and I have a new mission now. We do. <laughs> which, and I'm glad that which, you're part of this mission because the way you've <laughs> clarified it and extended it. But here's what I'm hoping. I'm hoping that spirit, well, we call spirit, or post-physical people, that post-physical beings don't have to, quote, assert their rights. We should be able to, because we're going to be, we're going to be them. It's yes. only a matter of time before you and yeah, I and everybody right. listening to, the, to your podcast are going to join them, quote, at the next level. We all graduate to the next level. And the question is, do we want to lose our rights then, particularly if we want to give back to the earth? In other words, if we choose 
to continue to be part of the planet should we have the right to do so. Now, I think that right now, um, from a purely ethical point of view, you know, I, if I had, were asked to vote, I'd vote in favor of human rights, period. But I could imagine that there might be certain practical considerations that would have to temper it or something, and I don't know what those are. But because I'm a, a scientist, meaning I'm always a, quote, agnostic about issues or agnostic about conclusions until there's enough evidence to draw a reasonable uh, make a reasonable decision i'm open minded to the idea that that you know this might be idealistic as opposed to our evolution but if i have a vote i would say it's time for us to reach to the next level to jump to the next capacity for human understanding and human uh, manifestation especially since it so much enriches our ability to mm. be human while we're in body, to have, as you point out, the advice and the assistance of people who are no longer in body uh, but were once. Therefore, they understand more about our condition, maybe even than we do. Um, and their minds work a great deal better without the interference of a brain. So I can, I can only imagine how smart Thomas Jefferson is now <laughs> when he doesn't even have a brain in the way. Um, I, you're right. I mean, there's a vision there which is much greater even than, than the comfort of being able to talk to dead people that we right. love and knowing we're going to be able to join them. There's a vision of a, of a much greater reality for all of us, even when we're in bodies, if we can have their advice and help. That's right. Exactly. I never thought I about that. Good. And you know what? And then, of course, the question becomes discernment. So the... It's not just simply, oh, you're deceased, now you've got a wider perspective and anybody can give their opinion about anything and we should just follow it. Um, the truth is is that it becomes even more uh, re- a requirement on us to be discerning about whose advice we, we take. That's and that's right. where, again, I come back to being a scientist. Because the, the essence of a scientist, which I also think is the heart also of law, is that you make decisions based on evidence. And you're very yes. clear about whether it's material evidence or circumstantial evidence. You're very you're, you're very clear about the integrity of the person who's providing that evidence. You consider what alternative explanations might be, and which is a uh, you know at various levels of doubt about the conclusions that you draw. I mean, there's a lot of um, uh, bridging between the the, the the scientific side and the legal side. Yes, right, and I think it would be iterative. It would be going back and forth because each would yes. need to inform the other. Um, <laughs> this is, we've just done the four minute hour. I feel like we've sprinted. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, in our, we're in our winding up period and we never get to talk about what I wanted to talk about, which was your cell phone work. So for sure, we're going to need to do this again soon to, to get to that. But this is, this has been, Certainly, for me, very eye-opening and exciting to even think about these things. And I, you've given me a lot to think about, Gary. I appreciate it so much. Um, but you're, 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 you are making progress, I'm assuming, on, if you're already writing the book, you are making progress on the cell phone. So that's yes. something that we really want to talk about. Um, so in a few weeks, everyone, Gary and I will get together again, and we promise we'll talk about those things as well as, as these Whatever is whatever's on your wonderful mind, Gary, is what I really like to listen to and talk about. Thank you so much for being here. Is there any last sort of one-minute thing you'd like to say, or uh, do you feel we've sort of sure. <laughs> we've given I, people I, enough I to would, boggle I would, them? Uh, well, what I would like to do is, to, again, to thank you, because I don't know if the listeners realize um, the unique 
person that's hosting the show, which is you. I mean, you have a unique combination of interests and passions and skills, um, including the capacity to communicate. Um, and that's very, you know, we all need to inspire each other to, to move forward and to move higher. And you do provide that for me, and I'm sure you do for your listeners. Hey, bless you. Thank you. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me, so that's, that's very nice. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> true. I'm sorry. Is- I, I'm sorry. That's what I feel. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, every time I talk with you, um, you expand my mind in, in ways that are exciting and thrilling. Um, I, I, and yet when you do it in the, in, as a child would, um, I, I never feel you're talking down to me. I always feel as if you're helping me find, I have four little grandchildren and they help me, to, they help me learn things I could never learn any, any other way. And you're, you have that quality about you too. You, you see things so freshly. So I'm, I'm very grateful for our friendship. Maybe someday you'll make me one of your honorary grandchildren. for now i'm roberta grimes my book is the fun of dying find out what really happens next and i have three more coming out in the spring which i'll be talking about in a few weeks we've been talking with my dear friend dr gary schwartz of the university of arizona He's the only mainstream scientist of which I'm aware who is studying the greater reality in a traditional university setting, and he makes it look easy when it's really almost impossible. His books include The Afterlife Experiments, The G.O.D. Code, and so many others. Look him up on Amazon. Everything he's written is wonderful. Now he's working on developing a way for us to simply phone up our dead loved ones, which, as he points out, is going to have implications that uh, we haven't even begun to think about. So we'll talk about that when we when we get together next time as well. Please join us next week. Our guest will be Mark Ireland. He's the author of Soul Shift. He'll be announcing and talking about his new book, which is due out the following Tuesday. So please join us next week. Meanwhile, visit us at afterlifeforums.com and join the discussion. But now... Go out and enjoy and make the most of this coming week in our one reality, knowing that you are an eternal being. You never began, you never will end, and you are infinitely loved. You've been listening to Seek Reality with Roberta Grimes, joyous conversations about your eternal life. To learn more, tune in every Saturday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. For lively and positive discussions, visit www.afterlifeforums.com. To contact Roberta, email her at roberta at seekreality.com. Wishing you a productive week empowered by the truth of who you really are.